Well, if we thought we were getting away from the uh, craziness last week with four wives and 12 children and mandrakes, fertility treatment, then, well, we're wrong. Because this week we get the most unique goat breeding we've probably ever heard of and ever seen. You know, it is really interesting. In one uh, passage, I had Phil extend the reading some because uh, at the end of the passage is actually uh, verse 43 of chapter 30 in Genesis, where it it says that Jacob was was blessed, had all these blessings. But we, we need to see what happens in chapter 31, because in chapter 30, we see this goat breeding with the sticks, right? And supposedly this is creating these speckled goats. I, I think it's actually almost funny. I think the narrator is trying to be funny when he, he says that, um, let's see, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. I think there's almost someone supposed to be there saying, voila, look what happened. They came forth spotted. It's it's supposed to be this kind of magical, surprising-like thing. But then in chapter 31, Jacob credits it all to a dream. Which is it? Is Jacob trying to practice magic? Or is he relying on the Lord? Let's see. You know, one of the huge things we're learning in the book of Genesis is what it means to be a genuine human being. How a person relates to their family and other human beings. How a person relates to the created environment. And, of course, how a person relates to God. And a large part of God's plan through the family of Abraham is to form humans who know how to walk with him in all these ways. And to send those people out as a blessing for the world. So that these people that God is forming will function as kind of like lighthouses who direct the world in good, healthy ways. That's what God's doing in the life of Jacob. He's forming him. But since Genesis chapter 4, we've encountered this other key character in the narrative. A guy named Laban. Laban is interesting partly because of his actions. He's just a unique character. He's a tricky character, a slippy, slippery character. But he's also interesting because he doesn't worship God. In fact, I think that Laban is one of the most well-developed pagan characters in all the Bible. Think about the nuance that's given to him. The amount of time that's given to Laban's dialogue I really think he's one of the most well-developed pagan characters in all the Bible. And our current passage is the second to last time we see Laban. The next time that Laban and Jacob meet will be to say goodbye. They're going to make a deal not to hurt each other, but that's it. This is the last major encounter we have of Laban making a deal with Jacob. Laban trying to be Laban. Up until this point, Laban's been a successful schemer. He's gotten the better of Jacob and he's profited greatly from the family of Abraham. But in this final deal, this working deal, Jacob is going to go from nothing, a mere servant to Laban, to great wealth. Laban, by the end, is going to have large flocks, many servants, camels, donkeys. And of course, he has this large family. But Laban, on the other hand, goes from strength, having significant wealth, to smaller, feebler flocks. It's an inversion. 
Laban is great. He goes to nothing. Jacob is nothing. He goes to great. Why? What's happening? Again, we're learning what it means to be a genuine human being. And so in this last deal between Laban and Jacob and its outcome, from each man we're seeing a lesson. From Laban we're seeing a lesson and from Jacob we're seeing uh, seeing a lesson on what it means to be a true human. We're going to begin with Laban. He dominates the first half of this section in chapter 30. Now, here's the lesson. And I'm going to trace this out. Apart from God, we can't become what we're made to be. Apart from God, we can't become what we're made to be. Now listen, as I said before, we first met Laban in Genesis chapter 24. Abraham's servant was sent there to find a wife for Isaac. And that servant brought lots of gifts for the family as a bridal price. Now, I want you to notice something about Laban the first time we meet him. Will you turn back to Genesis chapter 24? Keep your finger there in chapter 30. We're going to be coming back to that. But look at Genesis chapter 24, verse 29. Verse 29. Rebecca. She's to be Isaac's wife. And it says, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man, the servant, to the spring. Verse 30. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. Now listen, did you hear what it said first? He saw the bracelets on her arms. Laban had what we might call a natural aptitude for sales, negotiations. He has an eye for opportunity. It's not all bad, but what would he be like years later? Look just a few chapters later. This is chapter 29. Chapter 29. Jacob has been sent to Laban to find himself a wife. Laban is an old man by now, but evidently it hasn't slowed him down. Do you remember what it said when he heard about the servant? He ran to meet him. We'll look at verses 13 through 14 of chapter 29. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. Now, A couple things about the background that you you might be familiar with. But Jacob has run from his hometown because his brother was about to kill him. Jacob has nothing, unlike the servant who had lots to give away. So Jacob begins to tell Laban all that's happened in his family. Now this would of course include the deception he played on his brother and the deception he played on his father. And then Laban responds, surely you are my bone and my flesh. (laughs) What is Laban saying? Well, we've got some things in common. And it says that Jacob stayed with him a month. We're subtly clued in. Here, that Laban is still a schemer. Even more so, actually. 
And sure enough, after a month is up, once Laban realizes Jacob has no wealth to provide him, Laban invites his nephew to be his servant. Now, Laban has a beautiful daughter to bargain with, and he uses that to his advantage. Notice this about Laban. Every time he shows up, it's alongside other characters who are being formed in relationship with God. Think about Rebecca, his sister. She leaves her family to join the faith of Abraham to be Isaac's wife, a woman of the promise, and proves herself to be a great woman of faith. Jacob, right under Laban's nose, is being trained up to follow the Lord. Far from a perfect man, but a man who is in relationship with God. But Laban... He consistently appears as a man who primarily serves himself. And living apart from God, Laban will slowly turn in on himself. And in our passage today, he comes to the point where he's ruining his life. You see, we're being shown a character who lives apart from God alongside multiple characters who live with God. And it's a contrast an intentional contrast that we are to look into. In our passage today, in chapter 30, Laban has served, or Jacob has served Laban for 14 years. And he's done everything he agreed to do. He's done his time. He, and he's done it well. Now, Jacob, at this point, he doesn't have a claim to anything. He's a servant, right? And technically, as a servant, he belongs to Laban. And so that's why he tells him, give me my wives and my children. Laban has to enable him to leave. Now, Jacob doesn't deserve anything. He has no right to anything. But even so, the proper response from Laban would be to send Jacob away with well wishes and plenty enough to get started. This is made explicit later in the law of Israel. That when one has served you and it's time for him to go, you serve, you give him plenty as he leaves. We're not talking extravagance. We're just talking normal human generosity. That's what Laban was supposed to do. But Laban knows that he's been better off with Jacob. And he doesn't want to lose him. So instead he makes him another offer. Now, in all Laban's time with the family of Abraham, certainly he knows how to talk the language of faith. He's learned it. So he says, the Lord has blessed me because of you. But Laban doesn't have faith himself. His veiled generosity never comes out in explicit terms. Did you notice that? He, He said to Jacob before, name your terms. That's when Laban gave him the wrong wife. Jacob here comes off more honest than he ever has. He's worked hard and he wants to get what he's owed. He wants what his family needs to live. And so he asked Laban in verse 30, when shall I provide for my own household? Again, Laban, he refuses a direct offer. When when I think about Laban, I see him, he's the most evasive person I can imagine. I don't want to do anyone any disservice here, but I imagine him as the most dishonest car salesman I've ever interacted with. I mean, it frustrates me to the core. If you've ever interacted with people like this, there's no such thing as direct dealing. There's always something beneath the surface. 
Jacob's offer in return, it, it really does amount to what seem, would seem like nothing. Jacob says, don't give me anything. You know, that's the only way you can go with Laban. Jacob asked for speckled, spotted sheep, black lambs, and speckled and spotted goats. Now, goats in the Middle East are typically black or dark brown. They're not speckled. And sheep are white. They're not spotted or black. So Jacob is asking for the most uncommon of all the breeds. Uh, It's less than a typical shepherd would get. A a typical shepherd in this time would get like 20% of the flock. Rarely, if ever, would a speckled population amount to even that. So Jacob, either he's bold in faith or he's foolish. We're, We're not sure where he is yet. But Laban, even so, Laban is wrong to agree to this deal. He's essentially content for his son-in-law and his daughters to live in poverty while he grows rich. Listen, this is why Laban wants Jacob to stay. His flocks have done well under Jacob. He's become rich because of him. But he agrees to a deal that outside of a miracle will put Jacob in poverty. And if the deal isn't enough, look at verse 35. What's the first thing he does after he makes the deal? But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. He immediately removes everything that would have been Jacob's. He makes sure that Jacob has to start from scratch. What we're seeing is that Laban isn't the kind of guy who's happy to see others prosper alongside him. Laban's own satisfaction rests on his growth at the expense of others. So what happens when when Jacob does prosper later? Sure enough, Laban's favor turns. Laban again works to deceive here. He wants to make sure that he's built up and Jacob comes away with little to nothing. But in the end, look what happens. Laban is deceived in spite of his caution. And Jacob is is blessed in spite of his lack of caution. Look at verse 37. This is, again, a fun play in the text that shows how Laban is getting a taste of his own medicine Jacob peeled those fresh sticks, and it it says at the end of verse 37 that it exposed the white of the sticks. Now, white in Hebrew is the word for Laban. It's a play on Laban's name. Laban is the one who's being exposed. Finally, at the end of his life, he's beaten at his own game, and it's a devastating blow. Now, I want you to think now about the end of Laban's life. He's a very old man at this point. His sons are just like him. Did you notice that at the, top, at the beginning of chapter 31? Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and what, from what our, was our father's he gained all his wealth. His sons are just like him. Only now greed has turned to envy and bitterness because of someone else's success. And now even Laban's wealth, the primary thing that he worked and schemed for, is dwindling. 
It's going away. You see, in his old age, Laban is a tragic character. And here's the really sad thing. He's just reaping what he sowed. He rejected God and he rejected any moral formation that God would give him. He rejected the lessons that were happening in the lives of others right under his nose. And over the years, it's destroyed him. Laban is offering to us the lesson that apart from God, we not only can we not become the people that we're made to be, but we become the people that we absolutely don't want to be. It's simply what happens apart from God. My grandfather passed away last November from a heart attack. And I had a privilege of being a part of the service. My family did, you know, it was a blessing to be asked to be a part of the service. Uh, And I was thankful to be a part of it. But at the same time, it was extremely hard. You see, my grandfather throughout his life, and and I I say these things uh, without disrespect at all. Actually, I believe that my grandfather, by the grace of God at this point, is a different man. And when we meet again, we'll both be different and much better. I say this aware that he could be listening right now and hope that he is. But he bought into character traits, not only bought into character traits, but fed character traits of selfishness that made him a man who was just selfish. It became who he was to where at the end of his life, my grandmother took care of him every single day and he could do nothing for himself. And he actually wasn't concerned with the pain that it caused her. He was most concerned that she was the one taking care of him. He wasn't concerned that she got time away. He was concerned about himself. At the end of his life, to be brutally truthful, it was just sad. It was sad because he let these things become his character. And because it hurt other people around him, but he didn't even know. He was oblivious. Now, think about yourself. You might not be in danger of being Laban right now. But what about 20 years from now? What about, we don't like to think about our funerals. I don't encourage you to think about it a whole lot. But what will it be like? How hard will it be for the people who have to be a part of it? Are there character traits in you that you aren't allowing God to deal with? And over the years, could those character traits become who you are? Become the things that define you? Listen, I think that our character flaws are probably like really bad warts. Over time, they either get bigger or through some kind of intervention, they're reduced and dealt with. They aren't the kind of thing that stay the same. Are you allowing God to deal with your character? Are you allowing God to form you? Laban is a tragic example. He dies a diminished man. 
from what we know. Maybe by God's grace, he changed. We don't know. But at this point, all we have in the narrative, he is a sad, tragic character. Teenagers, this might seem so far away for you. Children, this might seem so far away, but you don't want to start off with bad character. You don't want to get off to a bad start. And so even now, with the help of God's Spirit, will you build good character now? Will you listen to your parents and the things that they tell you not to do? Because they mean so well. They love you. And that's a way that God forms you. Now, if we learn a difficult lesson of life apart from God, from Laban, (laughs) with Jacob, we learn a different, totally different kind of lesson. It's a lesson of God's incredible generosity. Like I said earlier, we have these two different accounts of how Jacob produced the spotted animals. In chapter 30, it sounds like he's using magic. In chapter 31, it sounds like he's this, this pious man who's relying on a dream. It's so confusing that some scholars have tried to say that it's two entirely different authors writing this. I think, there's a, I think that's a punt. It's bad. It, there's a much better way of dealing with it. There, there are two main ways of interpreting what Jacob is doing. And it matters for how we see Jacob. The first idea is that Jacob was practicing this early form of magic. You see, there, there was this general superstition in the ancient world that events experienced by a female during pregnancy could influence the child. You know, so if you look at a rock, the child might look a little bit like a rock. You know, um, that might explain some things, for, make sense of some things for somebody. I'm just kidding. But it, some suggest that the same was believed about the sites during actual mating. And so what these females are seeing while they're mating could have an impact on the, the goats and the, the kids. So it's some kind of magic. The, the second view, it, it rests more on Jacob's report of the dream, okay, in the next chapter. Now, here's something to keep in mind. The, the single-colored sheep or goats, you know, the, the dark ones or the white ones, they often carry a recessive gene. For spottedness. So it was completely possible for Jacob's herd to go from no spotted animals to predominantly spotted animals in a number of about six years through controlled breeding. If Jacob was able to find out from this dream which ones had the recessive genes, then he could have practiced controlled breeding and he could have produced this massive herd. It could happen. So in his supposed dream, the angel is showing Jacob which are the single-colored animals, and they they actually have this recessive gene. And so Jacob is fully trusting the Lord. He's relying on him and not on magic. Uh, It could be in that case that the limbs that Jacob is putting up have this chemical effect of uh, bringing the breeding cycle faster in the stronger animals, uh, putting the females in heat. Now, there's the point of all this. If we go with the first view, then Jacob is using magic at one point. Then at another point, he's crediting his success to the Lord. Who is Jacob? If we go the other, Jacob's completely innocent. He's fully reliant on the Lord. What what kind of guy is he? I think it's the first one. 
I think Jacob is much more of a mixed bag than we can even imagine. One minute he's practicing magic. He, remember, he's been doing these things by himself all along. He has been the continuously self-reliant man. And I think there's still part of that in him. At one moment he's practicing magic, but in another moment he's recognizing that it's the Lord. It's, it's that confusing on the inside sometimes, right? Even we don't know what's going on inside of us. The way the passage talks about Jacob using the sticks really sounds like he's trying to use magic. Verse 39, as I said before, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, so the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled and spotted. Ta-da! Look what happens. And yet, at the same time, Jacob has in some sense, somehow, whether from a dream or from his experience... He has a sense that God's blessed him beyond his skill in magic. I wonder if you've ever done something. You've taken a test. You've done something at work, whatever. And it went off astonishingly better than you could ever have imagined it going off. In many cases, what you should think is, wow, that must have been the Lord. The Lord is blessing me more than I deserved and more than I could have earned. The point of God blessing Jacob isn't that Jacob was a saint and that Laban was terrible. That's not the idea here. The point is that God is extremely, extravagantly generous to the people that he's forming, to the people he's in relationship with. God blesses Jacob in spite of his silliness and trying the magic. And here's the beautiful thing. God blesses us in our silliness too. There would come a day that Jacob couldn't credit his success to cleverness. He would have to credit it to the Lord who had promised to bless him and to protect him. But in this case, at this point in his life where he's still so mixed up, there's still part of his self-reliance and then there's the part of him that wants to honor the Lord. It seems God blesses him even in his self-reliance. Even in the things that are mixed inside of him. Will you believe God's promises? Will you believe God's promises to you and to all his people? That he'll bless us and that he'll preserve us and that he'll grow our church. The church and he'll make everything new. You see, this is the thing that we're seeing is that. God blesses beyond what they can earn the people that are in relationship with him. God's not frustrated by the cheat. Justice will finally be done. And he will bless his people. Now, this story is also a type of foreshadow of how hard life is going to be for God's people. Think about it. God's people are eventually held as slaves by an evil Pharaoh in Egypt. One who was more powerful and more wealthy than Laban. But there too, God rescues his people from their servitude and sends them out with the blessing of the Egyptians. Not only the blessing, the wealth of the Egyptians. And again, God's people 
are found and continue to find themselves in captivity to one who is like Laban, even worse, who wishes for nothing less than our demise. Did you hear that passage from John chapter 10? John chapter 10? He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You see, the evil one, like Laban, wants to be built up at the expense of humanity. There really is an enemy in the world who strives against humanity, who strives against the flourishing and true joy for humanity. And Jesus Christ really did come as a powerful redeemer, a shepherd, a better shepherd than Jacob, who practices not magic, but who practices powerful redemption. And he leads his sheep out of slavery to true life, to true humanity. This story is teaching us that apart from God, we can't become who we're made to be. And that with God, we can get far more than we could ever earn. Will you believe in God's generous love and blessing on you? Will you believe that he cares for you and your family, that he cares for the church, his bride, his people? And when you hold on to this faith, even when life is bleak, when it feels like you're in slavery. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.